Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, thank you as always for being a listener. And today's show is with New York, New York Times bestselling author, Jim Cousins. Jim wrote The Leadership Challenge with Barry Posner. He also wrote the book Credibility. And Jim has been kind enough to endorse two of our books. And it was interesting because Jim, when Jim agreed to endorse Why Aren't You More Like Me, uh, he had sort of forgotten his commitment around it and was heading to uh, Hawaii for his annual holiday. And wouldn't you know it, uh, he found out about his obligation or the fact that he hadn't fulfilled it just as he was leaving. And he said, Ken, I made a promise to you. I'm going to read your book on the airplane, and then I will forward to you my testimonial and endorsement of the book the next morning, which is what he did. This is the kind of person that Jim is. So it's going to, it's amazing um, sort of down-to-earth interview. With that, one of the things that we talk about is really around leadership. Leadership is around self-awareness, being conscious, being awake, uh, being able to fulfill the needs of other people. So one of the things that CRG has is our entire CRG online academy, which is the powerful online courses around personality, around values, around purpose, around wellness, leadership, that you can take at any time, 24-7, and or your team, to take yourself to the next level. We have a comment here, is that your ability to serve others is equal to or less than your own development. So take a look, go to crgleader.com, find out more about it. And if you are a professional that wants to take yourself to the next level and learn about our tools and assessments, then consider our professional mastery and assessment certification for yourself or your team members, leaders, that will take you to the next level. If you like what we're doing, please share, pass it on, let somebody else know about it. Now, here is our interview with New York Times bestselling author, Jim Cousins. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. You know, each week we want to have the best guests or experts globally uh, to serve you, to help you to grow, to be better, to do better. And we have no exception today with our guest. I am very, very pleased to have a colleague uh, on the line, and uh, Mr. Jim Cousins. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ken. It's a pleasure to be talking with you today. Well, Jim is a New York Times best-selling author, probably one of the top experts in leadership in the world. Jim, uh, share with our audience, how did you get into this? I, uh, one of our common friends, Richard Nodell, said, I remember Jim when he wasn't famous. So uh, explain to us a little bit your journey to get into this space, you know, being the best Times, uh, New York Times bestseller of, of the Leadership Challenge and Credibility and other books. Where did this all begin? Well, when I was in college, I heeded the call of John F. Kennedy when he was inaugurated President of the United States, uh, a, a procession in which I served as an honor guard when I was an Eagle Scout. And so I had always wanted to follow that call of ask not what 
your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And I joined the Peace Corps, and I taught school. Wow. Yeah, uh, in Turkey, a country that has had some recent recent, uh, disruption. And I served there, though, in quieter times, and I taught school. And after I served in the Peace Corps, I uh, wanted to continue to, to pursue teaching rather than uh, the Foreign Service, which was my ambition at the time and one of the reasons I wanted to be in the Peace Corps. And so I couldn't find work as a teacher because I didn't have a teaching credential, but I did find work in adult education, in executive education, in a program called Community Action Program Training Institute. And that began the training work that I did, first in, in team building skills, interpersonal skills, other OD-related uh, other OD-related types of training. And then uh, I got very intrigued by what individual leaders do to uh, create energy in a group, to inspire a group, to lead uh, transformations inside organizations. So I switched from focus on teams and organizations to focus on leadership. And then through a series of, of opportunities, first at San Jose State University and then at Santa Clara University where I met Barry Posner, he and I teamed up and found that we had a passion for managerial values and corporate culture, and that led us to look at, to further explore the whole issue of leadership credibility, which was uh, our early exploration on what it was that people looked for in admiring leaders, and later that led the two of us to look at leadership practices when individuals were performing at their best. Excellent. And when you think about Jim, you know, um, there's not many co-authors that have survived this many books together. What is it about your relationship with Barry that really keeps the glue together? And you've actually been an example of how to sort of co-author and work together over these many, many years. Yeah, it's it's amazing to us as well. Our uh, our wives call us. Uh, they're others. We're each other's other spouse. <laughs> so we we've had a close relationship, both with with um, uh, with Jackie Posner, Barry's wife, and my wife Tag Young, Kuzis. We've had great relationship over the years, and and it, it, we we actually had a conversation recently about this. Uh, we're now uh, reaching our thirty fifth year of collaborating together, and. And uh, we were just looking back and talking about that very, very topic. I think there are two things that, that are key. One is we both have a passion for the subject matter. So we both have a common interest. Uh, and yet we both have pursued that path in some different directions. While we met at university and we were both at university, Barry continued on the academic track, and I wanted to work in more of the applied side. And so I moved over to run a consulting and training company, uh, and Barry and I continued to write and work together, but it was a nice mix because I was focused on, so what do you do as a line manager or a senior executive to apply this uh, research that we are uh, in, in, involved in and in, in writing about, and what is it? And Barry, of course, had the academic interest, uh, and part of that was doing the research in order to publish and so it was a combination of, of both a passion for the subject matter, but very different applications of that. So they weren't competing with each other, 
had we be, been competing with each other for tenure at the same university, it might have had a different result. And, and so I think that's one of the keys. We also bring complementary skills. Uh, I, I am, uh, I, I have a different, slightly different style of writing than Barry. Barry slightly different style than I because of the, the way in which you write for an academic audience versus a, a, an applied audience. And so we can bring that, those complementary skill sets to this work. Uh, I also have, have historically had more opportunity to work in the, the training in an in adult education environment, whereas Barry's had the opportunity to work in academia and be involved with students. And so it's those complementary skills and, and different paths to apply this work that I think have, have uh, led, us, led us to the success that we've had as a team. And also I have to say, you know, uh, Barry's just a good guy. He's a, he's a good friend, and we enjoy working together. Well, that's always a, a, a well, it's not always, it's a bonus. And I would have to say, Jim, you know, I've not had any, um, you know, serious um, interactions with Barry, but every time that we have interacted, Jim, you have been an individual who has been a person of integrity and equally that same nice guy and not have been, with all your success, it's pretty easy that some individuals could be full of themselves, but that, I have not experienced that with you at all, ever. So I just want to tell the audience, if there's somebody that's a quality person in the field, who lives what they teaches, then you're one of those people, Jim. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Well, I mean, that's, that's very unique, and then you were able to bring that together. I know that, you know, being an author of some books, and you've been kind enough to endorse a couple of them from CRG, is that it takes a lot more patience to work together with another co-author, but you have found a way to work together so that really the, the brain power from both of you and the two different perspectives help to create a a more depth and wider experience for the reader. I think that's absolutely true, and I, I, I don't know that I could have done this on my own. I, I really feel like it was the two of us together that made it possible rather than one of us by, by him or herself. Sometimes it's not always the case with all writers whose names appear on books. One may do more work than the other, but over the years, uh, we, we, we also have never had a co-author, so we always are a collaborator, a ghostwriter. We always work uh, with this material ourselves. So over the years, you know, I've, I've probably rewritten everything Barry's written. He's rewritten everything I've written uh, so that uh, it, it, the, the, the different styles have merged into uh, one voice. Well, that's awesome. And, and the other thing is when you write... Uh, that leaving your ego at the door is important so that you don't take offense when your partner has changed what you've written. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> well, with that being said... I ink on my, the papers that Barry sends back to me in the drafts, <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and that's great because you're demonstrating how you know, that collaboration can work, especially in that space and for you know, 35 plus years. So that being said, Jim... I mean, you are an expert in leadership, and, and the listeners are wondering, okay, so when are we going to get to this meat around it? And I think, you know, getting to know guests from the heart are as important as what their expertise is. But one of the questions I have for you, Jim, before we get into, you know, the content of several of your different books as much as we can in the time allotted, 
why, why do we still seem to have, you know, in spite of all the work that we've done and, you know, what we've done and what Kenneth Blanchard done and what you and Barry have done, what, why does there still seem to be a significant gap or lack of leadership just globally, just, just as a general statement, not to say that there's not pockets of excellence, but why or what are the reasons that we still seem to have leadership just lacking in terms of, of, of working with others? What have you found and what are you finding? Well, I think what you're, you're primarily speaking to is the, the lack of trust people have in their most visible public leaders. You take, if we take a look at the overall data about leadership in general inside organizations, leadership is good leadership. It's much more evident now than when we started. Mm. Uh, but there's a perception that it may be worse because it, uh, of the more visible public leaders. Uh, after 2008, when we, when we first wrote the, the first edition of the Leadership Challenge, in fact, the perception of leaders at the time, the most senior leaders, was quite negative. And uh, the cynicism in this country was at an all-time high. In the, I'm speaking now of the United States. And, and, and at that time, uh, after that time, uh, trust increased, cynicism declined a bit, but we seem to have returned to that high cynicism, low trust environment right after the most recent Great Recession. And we are still climbing out of that hole. So part of it is a holdover from that period. The other, other thing that's happening globally is that the factions that exist have become much more evident and much more visible. So in the United States in the current election, people are split almost down the middle. Uh, if you take what happened, look, look at what happened at Brexit and the vote in Europe. Mm -hmm. the, it, was, it was not quite 50-50, but the Brexit vote won, but just by a slight margin. But it wasn't a landslide victory in one direction or the other, which suggests that we're quite divided. Mm. Uh, and that's just become much more evident. With social media, we are now able to see that dissatisfaction and see that uh, the, the, the dissatisfaction with leaders instantly. Uh, we're able to, 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 to be much more aware of all the negative that's happening. Mm. Also something, and you know this from your work in psychology, People tend to remember negatives longer than they remember positives. As, as human beings, maybe it goes. Well, and it seems like, um, you know, if you think about Facebook or LinkedIn or these other social media platforms or Twitter, is that uh, they want to speak their negative way more or multiples higher than somebody speaking a positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and it, uh, I think that that's absolutely true about Facebook, that the comments that are, uh, tend to be more, more negative, and more negative comments are 
uh, have more of an impact on us personally than positive. They're much more lasting and they're much more detrimental to us. uh, Well, it used to be stating when we did our relationship work, Jim, is that you needed five to eight positive comments to overcome Mm -hmm. one negative within a relationship. Absolutely. And so we're seeing that as we are bombarded by that. And so to summarize on that is that we just have this sort of world cynicism, but also world leaders that are failing us in different ways. So, so I know this is a loaded question and maybe not at the right spot, but I'll ask it anyways. So I'm a leader of a country that is completely divided. Mm-hmm. What do I do? What are, what are the steps that I need to consider or think about to be able to overcome some of these divisions? Well, the first thing, and, and, and I think this is true uh, with a couple. If you have a couple whose relationship is divided, what's the first thing that you do? What's the first thing that you need to do with a team of people where there are people who are divided? First thing that has to happen is people have to sit down and talk to each other. Uh, and that's not happening. People are, are uh, not having conversations. They're refusing to have conversations until people will sit down and say, we, we have a common interest here, which is the state of the country or the state of the world or the, 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 our company or our team or this relationship. You can't make any progress. Uh, and I, I think you would probably agree with that with regard to interpersonal relationships, right? Oh, absolutely. Part of one of the number one responsibility of any interpersonal relationship, personal or team, is that um, did I hear you? I mean, even our friend Stephen Covey, before he passed away, always said, "Seek to understand." Not necessarily. He didn't say seek to agree. He said seek to understand. So that's what you're saying is that yeah. we need to yeah. seek to understand and have this conversation, and that is a critical piece for a leader to facilitate rather than maybe go the other way around, which we sometimes see in some leaders today. I was recently commenting uh, in, a, in a piece I did for uh, a colleague in, uh, in the UK, a writer at the Financial Times, about Brexit. Brexit. Uh, and he was asking, which, which leader do you think, either historical or contemporary, would be able to lead us out of this crisis, the, it, speaking of Brexit. And I said, uh, to me, it's not one leader, it's a team of leaders. There's not one savior out there who's going to come and save us all from each other. It's going to take a team of people. And I think the same is true with regard to what, what will turn this situation around. It's, it's, it's a team of leaders coming together uh, and, and having, a con- having a conversation about how we work together. You know, one of the major things, Ken, we learned about leadership in the work that we did is, uh, is you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. There is no extraordinary achievement ever accomplished inside an organization or in a nation or in the world that was done by one single individual one single leader. It took a team of people and sometimes a team of rivals in order to be able to resolve the crisis. And that, that kind of team approach is going to be required in order for us to change the perception that people have of, 
of leadership. When 86% of the people globally, which is the statistic that comes out of the World Economic Forum, think that there is a leadership crisis in the world, uh, if you were running a company and you had customers say that to you, you'd pay attention, but leaders haven't even gotten to the point where they're paying attention to that thing. We collectively need to do something about this. Mm. Agreed, agreed. And, you know, one of your books when you were talking about, you know, the 10 truths about leadership, that was one of the 10 items that you talked about there is that we can't do this alone, that we need to be able to do this as a team. So, you know, one of the things for as a leader then is can I get my ego out of the way and realize it's that it's other experts that balance and complement who I am that will contribute to the success here. Yeah. And, and you have to give up wanting to be right explain that a little bit a little bit more you know aren't I hired as the CEO to be right I mean that's how some might see it when you have a situation where half the people feel one way and half the other you can't take sides if you're the CEO Taking sides would mean one, but some one part loses and the other part wins. Mm. And so I have to, if I'm in, in trying to bridge that gap, trying to heal the wounds, trying to bring people together, I'm going to have to find some common ground on which we can all stand. So yes, you have to articulate a common vision, and you have to lead people to that common vision. But it can't take sides with one faction or the other faction. Otherwise, be, you contribute to the divisiveness of the group. Okay. Yeah, and it, you have to bring something from each party uh, that, that they, they both feel like they gain from the, the, whatever compromise there, there might come from the dialogue. Uh, it's so we're, that's the unfortunate part about this situation. People are wanting to be right rather than to solve the fundamental underlying problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's true. That's true in personal relationships as well, or any kind of interpersonal relationships. And, you know, our colleague, Marshall Goldsmith, who was kind enough to endorse one of our books, says, okay, that, that's what I'm trying to coach out of the CEOs that I work with, is stop trying to be right and correcting everybody else so that you – the result being I demoralize them. One more question here, Jim, before we flip the coin and really go to the affirmative, because I don't want this to be about bashing leaders. But in your experience now and just all the work you've done in the field, are there a couple of sort of traits or characteristics or elements that are present for the majority of leaders who are not being as effective as you'd like to be or could be and then we'll flip after that response to say you know what is what is your recommendation and your research over the years so what are you finding when leaders are not being successful uh, you know maybe specifically in the business world what is it what are the couple of things that they are just missing you you mean you talked about doing it as a team but what else really is an important piece that you see right now that maybe there some are not considering? Uh, I'll give you three answers to that. Uh, the, the first thing that from our data that we find, so we have five practices, and, and we can talk more, more in depth about each of those, but there are five practices very quickly, model the way, inspire a shared vision, challenge the process, enable us to act, and encourage the heart. 
Of the five practices, the one which all leaders do least effectively is inspire a shared vision. And that's been over the entire time we've been doing our research. But we've made some progress in that direction, and people are now more aware that they need to articulate uh, a, a common vision, need to inspire others to share uh, a, a, uh, an image of an ideal and unique future for the common good. Mm-hmm. We're still not, leaders still aren't where they need to be with regard to that. That's not just worse leaders, that's all leaders, need to work more on inspiring a shared vision. It's particularly true the younger the leader is. Uh, Younger leaders, those with less experience, with less seniority, uh, with with smaller numbers of people that they might lead, have shorter time horizons than do more senior, more experienced leaders who are leading larger organizations. Uh, So from an empirical standpoint, that's the first on the list. The behavior which leaders least frequently engage in is asking for feedback about how their performance is impacting others. So while Inspire a Shared Vision as a practice, as a set of, of behaviors, scores the lowest, the one one item on our survey, the Leadership Practices Inventory, which scores the lowest, is ask for feedback. Uh, and and you, going back to a prior conversation, if you can't get feedback from other people about how you're doing, you're not paying attention to that feedback, it's hard to get better. Mm. Uh, so those are two very specific areas. But also, because leadership is a relationship, uh, other research suggests uh, Center for Creative Leadership uh, being uh, among those groups that has found this, is that the failure of executives tends to be on the relationship side, not on the technical competence side or the the financial acumen side, but on the relationship side. So in general, relationships and the failure to build strong relationships and strong teams is a a major contributor to failure, uh, particularly at the more senior levels. Now, I want to bring in some feedback or, or, or some follow-up questions to this because I think these are just perfect to go a little bit deeper in, if you, if you will, Jim. You know, when we think about this inspired vision, and I was um, fortunate enough to use the LPI back in the 90s when um, you had developed it then, and I had used it with a Fortune 500 company. When you think about inspired vision, what is it, what is it you actually really asking me to do you know, so, so how do I manifest or produce or, or actually do this practice within an organization or a group? I'm a, I'm a brand new CEO. I'm failing in this. Just coach me in a moment or two about what do I need to do so that Inspired Vision really is present. Well, let's break, break it down. So inspiring a shared vision is, uh, first of all, about – we define vision as an ideal and unique image of the future for the common good. And so I began asking myself these questions. Do I have a clear image in my mind of ideally what we will look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road? Now, no one can predict the future, but the nice thing about vision is 
you can create it. Mm. You can imagine it. And I need as a CEO or as a leader of a, of, of a small team to have in my head some picture of what the future will look like. Let me use an analogy. We often do this with, with teams to help them to understand this conceptually. I come into the room and I, uh, I ask you, I have a team of people sitting around a table and I, and, and I ask you to, to put this jigsaw puzzle together and I dump a box full of, of puzzle pieces in the middle of the table and I say, put the puzzle together. What's the first thing that you want from me? Everybody wants the cover of the box to see the image you want me to make. Exactly. That's, so, so what we do in organizations is we give people pieces of a puzzle called the organization, and we say, put this together, and they walk out of the room, and they don't tell you what it's going to look like when you're done. So people struggle, and they compete, and they argue, and they, 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 or they just sit and do nothing because they don't have a clear image of the end result, or they just do their little piece. they got three or four pieces, and they work on them. They don't work with the others. In order for people to put the puzzle together, they have to see the whole thing to understand. That's also what gives them meaning. When I know where my piece fits, Mm-hmm. Then I can see how it contributes to the whole. I see that it matters. I see that it makes a difference. And, and also, is this picture of the future the same or different than every other organization? Now, if I have a sign over my desk of welcome to, to our company, we're just like everybody else, that's not very inspiring. No, it's not. How do we differ from other people? What is it that makes us unique and distinctive? Where do we stand out? what differentiates us from others uh, so that w- when people come to work every day, they understand again, why they're coming here versus some or other organization and, and how this organization is, it matters and makes a difference. So how we're serving internally as much as we're serving externally. You know, and how, it, how we are, if we're producing products, uh, you know, there are a lot of commodity products in the world. Let's just take mobile phones. As an example, how, do, how, does, how does the product that we make differ from all the other people who make that same product? Uh, what makes us unique and distinctive? And then, of course, it, the common good, so an ideal and unique image for the, uh, of the future. So is this mm-hmm. something that's just about the next quarter or is it about the longer term? And the, the more span of control people have, the larger the numbers uh, the more senior the person, the longer the vision. So my vision of the organization, if I'm a CEO, has to have a longer time horizon than if I'm uh, a frontline supervisor. Mm-hmm. So there is some differentiation based on level. Uh, the, the way to conceptualize this, again, is to ask yourself, what, think about the longest-term project that I'm currently working on and when that's going to be completed. So if I'm a director, a middle-level manager, and I'm working with, with, with other managers who report to me, and they are uh, in turn supervising others who are frontline, mm-hmm. 
collectively, what's the longest-term project we're working on? When, and have a, when does that end? I have a date in my head. Let's say that's 10 years from now or five years from now. When we take a look at the longest-term project that anyone of us is working on. As the leader of that group, I need to have an image in my mind of what's next, not what we're currently working on. That would be a goal, but what we're going to be doing after. Mm. And so Absolutely. So, and then where does this fit into the longer-term piece? One of the items that seems to be coming out more, Jim, is this whole idea of how this vision is connected. You talk about the common good, but really this, this word around social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Are you mentioning that as part of what the common good is as well? Well, the common good, yeah. The common good would be all of the constituents that might be uh, have an interest in our vision. And, and in today's world, more and more employees as well as customers are not only interested in how are you serving us internally, but how are you serving us externally. How is this, is this organization doing its part for sustainability, for example? Are we mm-hmm. being socially responsible with regard to the communities in which we live? Uh, uh, are our products the kinds of products that are sustainable, made from sustainable materials, or uh, are, are the kinds of products that are, will have uh, uh, you know, a longer life cycle? not just discarded immediately. I mean, those kinds of concerns. Mm. Well, things like fair trade have come up and other coined phrases that link into that. So that's great on it. You, you, may, you mentioned something earlier that your data was showing that the younger the leader, the less likely they are to have this inspired vision. Is there any specific reason? Is it simply experience or lack thereof of uh, just not having all those years behind them and just kind of maturing through it, or is there another reason? Uh, you know, that is a, a question which we still haven't answered. We, we, we keep asking ourselves that question, and we're currently exploring because we're doing the sixth edition of the Leadership Challenge. But we, we have some, some thoughts. Up until one graduates from university, you're typically, although you might be thinking about your career, you're typically concerned more shorter term. You're concerned about the grades I'm going to get in this, in this term mm-hmm. or when I'm going to graduate university or when I'm going to graduate high school, when I'm going to graduate university. So your time span it tends to be bounded uh, shorter term. So that's probably one explanation. You, you never, you're not typically asked to think longer term as you, as you, start to think about your career, you're really only thinking typically about getting a job rather than what are you going to be doing long term in that career? What do you see as your career progression? So only when people get to work and there's some conversation that begins about a career path and how one moves along that path and what the progression might look like, do we start to think longer term? that's a gross generalization, but that's one explanation. Mm. As, as well, well it, it sort of seems to make common sense that as you mature through, we know that you know, those of us that have been in this industry for a while, we are better and we have clear vision if we've been paying attention, 
now than we did even just 10 years ago, even though we might already had 20 years experience. So it, it seems to, at least that's been my experience and the people that have been interviewing Jim is that that maturity just brings this sort of reflective side. Uh, I was at a conference just a couple of weeks ago and one of the speakers mentioned that biologically science has now proven the ability to craft a life and have vision is the cognitive side but also the reflective side and the ref reflective part of the brain really does not even come into play or mature or come into operation until I'm 19. Hmm. So all of a sudden, even my ability to be clear about what that means, he says, I need the reflective to be able to contribute to this um, full picture because the cognitive isn't just it, as you were mentioning to the managers earlier around relationships. I can do the task side, but then I have the relationship side. So I just thought I'd insert that there, Jim, that was some new research that I was unaware of till just a couple of weeks ago. And that's very consistent. Thank you for sharing that. That's very consistent with work that uh, historians have done on cor corporations, that corporations which tend to value their corporate history and have corporate archives and are uh, uh, pro talk with people in the organization about their history tend to have longer time horizons. Uh, so that reflective piece, looking back, helps us to extend our thoughts into the future. There's some research done by a colleague named Omar El Sawe, whose doctoral work was on this, actually, who asked uh, the, the participants in his study, who were all CEOs of small to medium-sized organizations to uh, think back over their careers and, and kind of think about the critical events that had occurred uh, up until this point and then to think about the future. And then he asked another group to do the same task but in reverse order. Think about the future and where, where you see yourself in the future, however long that is for you, and then think about the past. So it was the same task, but in reverse order. And then he had a third control group uh, who didn't, uh, who, who just wrote about the present. And, and so he then looked at the time horizon uh, and how long it was, because he had people date the events. Those who looked forward first, then backward, looked half the distance into the future that those who looked backwards first and then forward. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, so, so there is that reflective piece. Uh, and the part of the brain which is concerned with envisioning the future is also the same part of the brain that uh, reflects on the past. And so there, it, it would make sense then, Ken, as you were saying, that we need more history in order to be able to see more future. Interesting as uh, that unfolds there. Uh, and the other one is, is, you know, just to expect individuals. I know, I mean, I'm a father of, of millennials and uh, all kinds of enthusiasm and inspiration and uh, yet at the same time, uh, to have the same wisdom that somebody who is 50 
I'm not sure if that's a reasonable expectation, though. Sometimes people uh, do expect that. Well, um, I think as parents, uh, we we are um, hopefully coaching uh, our our young, our sons and our daughters to based on our own experience to be more reflective about about uh, you know their future and to learn that skill earlier in their lives well there's certainly opportunities for that and uh, with as parents I suspect many do and uh, you know as, as we continue this and we only have time for a couple more uh, points here and just you know honor our, our listeners here but one of the the second point that you were mentioning was really around uh, asking for feedback or not asking for feedback. So what can you tell us about that data where leaders, is there a specific reason why they're not asking? Are they fearful of it? Is it insecurity? Or they just didn't think it was even necessary? What did you find? Well, as, as I'm sure you know from any interpersonal relationships, feedback, uh, feedback can hurt feedback, asking for feedback makes you vulnerable. Mm. Uh, getting negative feedback might damage your own self-image. So people resist getting that tough feedback uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but in general, it makes you vulnerable. And it may, you may think it makes you appear weak. Uh, admitting mistakes makes you appear weak, you might think. But in fact, the opposite is actually true. That people who admit that they make mistakes actually are more trusted than people who don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we, we have this general sense that if I ask for feedback and it's not all positive and people give me some negative feedback that I'm not perfect and I'm not doing everything well and that I've made mistakes in my past, that I will appear weaker as a leader. But the opposite is true. And so the main, when you make yourself vulnerable like that, uh, you risk a lot. And uh, risk a lot interpersonally, you risk, risk a lot personally. And uh, people may, you may take advantage of something that they find about out about you that's negative, and so uh, there's there is a, there there is a fear that gets created, but the exemplary leaders know that if they if they want to build strong, lasting relationships with other people, they have to make themselves vulnerable from time to time. One of my mentors was John Gardner. Mm-hmm. John uh, was served as Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare in the Johnson administration. He served five different presidents of the United States. His last years, he spent as a professor at, San- at Stanford University. He's a wonderful man, founder of Common Cause. He was he was just he was a gentleman. He was brilliant. He was a great he was a great advisor and a, just a, a, a gracious man. And and he uh, he once said, "Pity the leader." caught between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. Say that again. Pity the leader caught between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. <laughs> I just love that statement. So pity those leaders who are, who are sandwiched between those people who have nothing good to say about them 
and those people who have only good things to say about them. Those who have only good things to say about this, eventually we say, okay, enough already. You know, it, it, you either want something from me or you're just you're being sycophantish. And, you know, I, I don't tend to listen to those people over the long term. Yes, it's nice to get positive feedback, but really I can't be all that great. On the other hand, those individuals who are constantly criticizing us and have nothing good to say about us whatsoever, we're going to shut them out eventually. Say, so, okay, really, you know, I've heard it already. Stop. I'm, I'm not listening to you anymore. But those who say, I love you, I care about you, I'm concerned about you, and I need to give you some difficult feedback, those are the kind of people leaders should have, need to have, and must have if they're going to be the best they can be. So it's, it's finding those few people that you can rely on to always tell you the truth about how you are doing, but who also you know deeply care about you as a person and your success as a leader. Those are the kind of individuals we need to find and surround ourselves with. So that we- In one of your books, you, um, you mentioned you know, leadership is a matter about the heart. You're really talking about that uh, with the leader and the leader's trusted advisors, that the heart has to go both ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, in fine... Go ahead. Advisor. Sorry, Jim. The trusted advisor is a great term. Uh, that, uh, but that trusted advisor is someone who, who, who will not just give you only positive, will also, will also make sure that you're aware of where you're not doing so well as a leader. What's interesting, all of us had worked at different places or consulted with different clients. And if you're only doing positive or only saying what everybody else says, then there's really no need for you, is there? No, exactly. (laughs) I'm not uh, uh, contributing or maybe I'm just protecting myself and I diverge off that. And then finally, the other item that you mentioned was really around the need or uh, the requirement to build relationships. And I just want to tell a short story, Jim, and then I want to hear your thoughts about it. Is I'm, I've worked with many uh, Fortune 500 companies over the years, and I'm somewhat bewildered of individuals who were in the senior VP or VP positions or even CEO positions hmm. who really have very few interpersonal skills. And so my question is, how did those people get to those positions? How is it that, you know, we know that we need it to really be effective leaders, but how did these individuals who really lacked interpersonal skills and communications get into those senior positions? Do you have any insights on that, Jim? Uh, I'm as baffled as you are about how that happens. To me, it shows, uh, unfortunately, the ignorance that, that still persists about what success, what, how one defines success, because we know in the short term you can – you can get results by being abusive and by having high turnover and, and by, by uh, wear, just completely wearing people out to the point of exhaustion, uh, to not paying attention to human needs. You can get things done, and you can often get exceptional things done. I mean... <laughs> You look look back in history, and you know much much of the the railroads were built that way, and the uh, 
lot of bridges were built that way, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, pyramids were built that way. Uh, some iconic things were built that way, but in the long term, and particularly now in the modern, you cannot treat people that way and expect to get results over the long term, expect to survive as an organization. So I think we're still stuck in many respects to looking back like that and say, well, look, they built a pyramids and uh, you know, they didn't treat people too well, or they built uh, you know, this company and uh, people were not always engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when we, so when we think about this relationship, and you know, interesting enough, it's exactly what we teach, and, and I quote uh, your books and your information on just about any program that I conduct, Jim. You know, when you think about the relationship skills, are there, are there a couple, two or three, that sort of stand out as foundational pieces or skills that are required for this relationship side of uh, the business and leadership? Uh, yes. The, the first of those is, I, I think it begins with a mindset. And the mindset is, you, you recognize that as an individual leader, you can't make anything extraordinary happen on your own. That you can't do it alone. And therefore, what you start with that assumption. And therefore, I need to develop relationships with other people. In developing relationships, it all begins with trust and building trust. Uh, we tend to trust people more whom we know then we don't know. There may be people we know really well. We don't trust at all. But in general, we tend to trust people more whom we know. So mm-hmm. the, one of the first steps in that direction is, is to get to know other people and for them to get to know you. You've got to build a true relationship, one where people know you as a human being. Uh, and one they, they, they will uh, then begin to trust you. Uh, a good piece of that is being an obsessive listener, listening more than you talk, asking good questions, so that when you are, when people are speaking, you can get greater clarity uh, and sense of meaning. So active listening is a very important set of skills. Uh, The ability to uh, be able to read other people's emotions so that they know, you know, how they are feeling in any given moment. I have, I have a, a concrete suggestion for every leader when it comes to relationship building. It's really about a mindset that one would have, mm-hmm. which, is, which is this simple little uh, thought exercise. Imagine before you start any interaction, whether it's with a, one person or a small group of people or a large group of people, Ask yourself the following question. What can I do in this moment, which may last a few seconds, may last an hour, what can I do in this moment to make others feel more powerful, competent, and able to do more than they thought they could? So powerful, competent, and able. Able. So what can I do right now to make people feel more, more capable than they are right now? What can I do in this instant to make people feel that they're competent, powerful? What can I do right now? And if you enter in any interaction with that mindset and, and then 
have an answer to that question. I can give them a piece of information. I can compliment them. Uh, I can tell them a story. Uh, I can simply put my hand on their shoulder and say, good job. Uh, I can say, you know, uh, you need to meet someone who I think could be helpful to you. You've got a, 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 a hundreds of choices of things you could do, but if you enter in any relationship with that attitude, you're much more likely to build the kind of lasting relationships you'll need long-term as a leader. This basic, not basic, <laughs> but fundamental or foundational interpersonal skills, you know, of really being able to listen uh, sometimes, Jim, I'm amazed. Uh, I can uh, interact, and, and it's funny because I actually have just was doing this, just watching other people interact, where you can come into knowing a new person, a very skilled individual, yet at the same time they could chat with you for 30 minutes and never ask a question, and you could actually, they would never ask you personally a question. They would just talk about themselves, pleasant, but not once say, well, Jim, how are you feeling? Or what's your experience on that? It's, I'm actually quite surprised of people in senior positions who don't even have those basic skills. Hmm. Yeah. It's, they, they, have, they have obviously had some great training and experience to get where they have gotten and have some good skills. But without those, that relationship piece, the research is really clear that at some point they derail. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I remember my wife and I, Ken, went to Truckee, California. Truckee uh, uh, is up in the Sierra and on the way to Tahoe, on the way to Lake Tahoe. We stopped for uh, stop at one of the shops there. And we were walking into this building, and it's right next to the railroad tracks, a wooden clapboard building. Mm. And screwed into the side of the building was this beautifully hand-carved plaque. And on it, it said, this building is dedicated to the memory of Ignatius Joseph Furpo. And then in quotes, it said, what we have done for ourselves dies with us. What we have done for others remains and is immortal. Mm-hmm. So it's not about our self-centeredness, is it, Jim? Not at all. It's not about me at all. It's about my constituents, my team, people for whom I am responsible, uh, my customers, people who are the citizens of this community. Those are the people that if I have them in my mind every time I make, take action uh, and I'm thinking about what, what I can do for them, I'm much more likely to be seen by others as an exemplary leader and much more likely to have an impact than if I am always thinking about what's in it for me. Very, very good words to uh, and on, hey, can you believe it? Our time is almost up, Jim. It just goes so quickly. There's so many more questions, and maybe we'll have to do it again sometime. Jim, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and Barry, what website, email, or phone number uh, could they potentially reach out to get a hold of you? Well, the website is leadershipchallenge.com, and you can reach either of us through that website. 
you can send an email that way, and that's probably the easiest way. And you can also see all of the books that we've done and other other uh, events that we're doing that uh, you might be interested in. So leadershipchallenge.com. Leadershipchallenge.com. You're coming out with your sixth edition of that book? Wow. Sixth edition <laughs> will come going. out in 2017, yeah. And I have the learning leadership in front of me. I have credibility in my library. Um, you know, the, the list goes on. How many books now have you authored? Do you even know? Uh, we have 150 uh, plus ISBN numbers. Uh, but uh, in terms of trade books, we're at a dozen uh, books like Credibility Leadership Challenge and, and uh, uh, Leader's Legacy, Truth About Leadership, and then we have uh, a whole suite of training and development material. And I've used those suites. I've used the LPI. i just uh, going to encourage the listeners, if they want to learn more about that, that they would go to theleadershipchallenge.com. Uh, Jim, I just wanted to publicly thank you for you taking the time to endorse a couple of our books, too, in your busy schedule. And so just really, really appreciate you as a colleague and just the quality and the characteristics that you exude in any of our interactions that we have had. Well, Ken, you've been most gracious, and thanks so much for this opportunity. I look forward to we'll, – we'll do it again. We'll, we'll make sure to do it again. Oh, uh, for sure. Ladies and gentlemen, I just thank you for listening, you know, and listening to one of uh, the best experts on leadership, uh, if not in the country, <laughs> in the continent, on the world. I thank you for listening for Secrets of Success. If you like this show, then I just encourage that you would forward it, that you would share it that you would let other people know about it. And if you have any comments or ideas for us for our next shows, then please contact us at the form that's on this podcast. You know, again, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.